Today on Not Cleared, we talked to Fred Flights and Victoria Coates about the National Security Council, which is the president's principal forum for considering national security and foreign policy matters with their senior advisors and cabinet officials. Fred and Victoria both served on the NSC under the Trump administration, so it was really nice to pick their brain about the makeup of the National Security Council, how it operates more generally, and they both were able to use the experience that they both got in the government to shed some light on the horrific attacks that took place in Kabul last week. Okay, so since our last podcast on August 26th, there were multiple attacks at the Kabul airport that resulted in the death of 13 American service members, 11 Marines, one Army soldier, and someone from the Navy as well. Um, So despite everyone begging Biden to extend the deadline of withdrawing past the 31st, we stuck to that, withdrew all of our troops, which could be said led to these attacks. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the National Security Council, Fred and Victoria, just we welcome your thoughts on what happened last week and if we can expect anything similar to that to be happening in the coming weeks? Well, it's good to be here. Uh, I'm Fred Flights, president of the Center for Security Policy. Um, Well, Joe Biden gave a press conference yesterday in which he called the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan an extraordinary success. I got to tell you that uh, this reckless withdrawal that cost the lives of 13 U.S. servicemen and left Americans behind is no way a success, a, a, a strategy that left $80 billion of U.S. weapons in Afghanistan. Uh, and we gave them a list of Afghan citizens they'll probably use as a kill list to kill Afghans who work with us. It's a catastrophe. I think looking forward, it, it is my hope that there will be more qualified people who would be brought in the administration to give the president better advice. I think Congress has to work very hard on that to surround Joe Biden with competent people who will resist future incoherent and incompetent national security decisions. And I think more are coming. Uh, There's stories that we're thinking of giving the the Taliban government economic aid, maybe diplomatic recognition. We have to think about how uh, Islamist terrorists will probably flock to Afghanistan now, which will become a terrorist safe haven because of all these terrorists who were released from the Bagram prison. And I'm worried how Russia and China will respond to this. This is a very dangerous time for our national security. And I think it's time for Congress to put politics aside and to demand some major changes to get our national security back on the rails and to protect us from the extraordinary threat that Joe Biden poses to our national security. Victoria, I was wondering, um, you know, the Biden administration has openly admitted that Americans have been left behind and they say that we'll be relying on diplomatic means to get those people out. What does that actually mean for the people that are still stuck? Well, unfortunately, I think it, it, it's not it's not good for them. Um, you know, the, the president overtly lied to the American people when he said that that we would stay until every American who wanted to get out and every Afghan who who uh, had an SIV uh and wanted to get out was out. And, and that, that didn't happen. And we were hearing these terrible stories, both of American citizens, and then even the translator who helped rescue Joe Biden himself in Afghanistan, 
uh, all being stuck. And, you know, the Taliban are not behaving in a particularly encouraging way. I think we all saw the videos of them parading coffins with American and NATO flags on them around, uh, which, which doesn't suggest that they are as the administration is trying to spin it, some sort of partner for peace. And one of the points I made in my national review column this week after Afghanistan is that the, friend, the, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend when he is a terrorist. I mean, you cannot deal with these people. And the notion, as Fred said, that we would be somehow trying to get to a point of recognizing them as a legitimate government so that we can keep the aid, the American taxpayer dollars flowing into Afghanistan is just bizarre. And I think I concur completely that Congress is going to have to find a way to put a stop to this and also to, to figure figure out how the Congress can act as some sort of responsible break on the disastrous decision-making that's going on in the White House. So I want to go back to the rumors that, um, or basically the statements that we haven't ruled out potentially giving the Taliban aid. That's crazy enough now, but it's even crazier when all the Americans still haven't been evacuated from Afghanistan. So just, I guess, take us inside the minds of our national security professionals. Why would they be even considering giving the Taliban financial aid? This policy has just been so misguided. There's been so many illusions we're hearing. We, we've heard Biden and his aides saying that we have leverage over the Taliban. And, uh, we're going to pressure the Taliban to uh, become a responsible international player and to respect the rights of women because we passed a resolution in the U.S. Security Council asking them to and that they sign an agreement with 100 nations to to do this. Uh, it's delusional, Matt. It, 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 I mean, the Taliban is a terrorist organization. It does not care what the rest of the world thinks of it. And it knows that Russia, China and Iran will happily come in and fill the void that we left uh, leaving the country. And even if, so let's say the Taliban are the quote unquote nicest of all these terrorist groups that have come back up recently. <laughs> we've, we've already seen, there was that video of the Al-Qaeda guy coming back into Afghanistan shortly after Yeah, Bin Laden's head of security. Yeah, so even let's say the Taliban are great and we get along with them, which obviously isn't true but they still are going to be facilitating these other terror cells and groups from coming into Afghanistan. Well, I would just add, Matt, to what, what Fred was saying, that, that they're getting this completely backwards. And, uh, you know, I've been talking to a lot of our former colleagues from the Treasury Department who did heroic work uh, sanctioning the Taliban and, and other groups uh, in in recent years. And we do have tremendous leverage, or we, we could have tremendous leverage, but the way to deploy that leverage would be by withholding aid, by not seeming so eager to give aid. And the Taliban are going to have problems. There are already talks of runs on the banks in Afghanistan. They're going to have a, a uh, fractious uh, opposition up in the north, and you know, I think that what we should do is just if 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 this policy, if this Biden policy of withdrawal is what we're stuck with, we should certainly step back and let let them fall, but don't try to prop them up. And so, you know, the idea that we would preemptively give them aid in the hopes that they may modify their behavior down the road is is in a word crazy. Yeah. So I guess just to wrap up the Afghanistan situation before we get on to the National Security Council, we all agree that it would be crazy to give them aid. 
Um, but I guess just looking forward, especially with the September 11th, 20th anniversary coming up, what do you guys envision happening, especially that could maybe be tied to the U.S. withdrawing from Afghanistan so they have more time and less pressure that the U.S. isn't there to maybe be planning some kind of terrorist attack in the next few weeks? Well, we saw what happened in uh, in Iraq and Syria in, 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 during the Obama administration when uh, the Obama-Biden policies led to the, the rise of the Islamic State and foreign fighters flocked to Syria and Iraq. And uh, there was a, a, a series of very uh, dangerous terrorist attacks around the world, especially in Europe, very, very big one in France in 2015. I'm worried that that's coming. And frankly, and I don't know if Victoria agrees with me on this, I, I think we're going to see uh, some major terrorist headquarters being set up in Afghanistan. It could be too, it could get so bad that we'll have to send ground troops in again. Oh, I, I agree completely, Fred. I think, you know, it's also important to remember that Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and Khorasan and, and the Taliban have not spent the last 20 years, you know, learning to knit and baking cookies. They've spent the last 20 years, you know, plotting against us, fighting, organizing. And, you know, this is their dream come true. And I'm very, very concerned with the upcoming anniversary, which President Biden, again, bizarrely, Said, used the word celebrate when he originally announced the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. He said we could celebrate 9-11 with uh, the withdrawal, the, the surrender of, of all that we fought for in Afghanistan. Uh, I think the Taliban are certainly going to try to celebrate 9-11, as, as will al-Qaeda. And uh, you know, the original date was chosen for its symbolism. They are very big on this kind of symbolism and anniversary. And so I think we should all be deeply, deeply concerned uh, by what by what may be coming in 10 days. And also, uh, you know, the, as you said, I mean, the fact that, you know, in October of 2021, we may be back in Afghanistan. Right. Well, this is, it's been a shocking couple of weeks just to see how badly this has been handled. And um, let's hope that Let's hope that we're wrong about what's to come. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the National Security Council. And both Victoria and Fred served on the NSC during the Trump administration. And I want to get into what they did specifically. But just to start with, Victoria, can you just describe what the National Security Council is? Thanks, Morgan. Yes. I mean, it's it's one of the most important uh mechanisms in our executive branch. And it's very little understood. And quite frankly, I didn't understand it when I first joined in January of 2017. Uh, what the National Security Council is, is a group of a combination rather of both political appointees uh, who are uh, the direct advisors to the president and his national security advisor, and then also career uh civil servants and military. And so you could have a combination and my directorate, the Middle East and North Africa directorate, you know, we had a combination of a couple of just a few political appointees. And it's important also to realize that the career uh, element in the NSC is, is, is much, much larger than the political element. And so we had a combination of folks from the intelligence community, from NSC, 
NSA and FBI and obviously CIA. Among others, we had foreign service officers from the State Department. We had a number of active duty military, uh, and some some retired, but most of them active duty. Uh, and so you have a really wonderful combination of different elements across the U.S. government who come together at the NSC to coordinate policy for the president. And Fred, could you describe what the National Security Advisor's job is? Sure. And and I I agree with what Victoria said. I I would add that the NSC was created to coordinate policies among, national security policies among different agencies for the president. And uh, the, the, the model Consider the gold standard is 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 considered uh, the Brent Scowcroft model. Uh, he was a national security advisor under President Ford and President George H. W. Bush, and he considers him he considered himself an honest broker to work out national security differences between state and uh, the Treasury and 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 the Pentagon, and uh, that is the model that many. Uh, men and women who've held this position believe that the, the national security advisor sh- should play, that when he gives advice to the president, he is relaying uh, the agreement or the consensus of the various agencies. He'll chair meetings of, of, of these agencies and give them advice. But practically, however, there's been different views of how this should should be done. And I think uh, there were many in the Trump administration who believe that because the foreign policy agencies were not following the president's policies, there was a temptation to try to run national security out of the NSC and to uh, you know, basically, in, in some, many in Washington look at the NSC as a government agency, not as a coordinating body. And under Henry Kissinger, it was more or less used as a foreign policy body to get around the State Department. And I know there were there were people in the Trump uh, National Security Council, and I think at times my former boss, John Bolton, uh, who saw the NSC as an opportunity to get around uh, uh, government bureaucrats and other agencies who were resisting the president. Uh, that doesn't always go well, but it just reflects some of the complex uh, interactions that you have in trying to run uh, our national security. I. I- would take a slightly different uh, angle on that that issue, Fred, in that I, 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 I agree that certain individuals have tried to use the NSC as, as, as a way to get around some of the larger agencies. But I think in an ideal world, the NSC is not just a conduit of policy to the president, but also a conduit of the president's policies to the interagency. And I think the way we did that most effectively on the Trump NSC was actually the foreign terrorist organization designation of the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is something that had been discussed and kicked around Congress for a number of years and something the president very much wanted to get done, something uh, Ambassador Bolton wanted to get done. And Rather than go around them by executive order, our directive was to actually get them to comply. And they really, really did not want to do it. And there were various reasons they didn't want to do it. Military didn't want to designate another military. Uh, And it took months of just a bureaucratic slog to get everyone onto the same page where we could make the designation and it succeeded. And it was always stood out in my mind as the, the 
the best example of our having a directive from the president and the national security advisor, and then being able to get the interagency to accept and implement that. So I think, you know, in, in an ideal world, you know, the NSC isn't just functioning as a, a transparent coordinating body, but is, is also serving as a means for the president to communicate his priorities uh, to the rest of the government. I want to add, I, I, I think that's right. And, and it does represent presidential authority and presidential power. Um, but, but I will say that given the problems we had with the so-called swamp in Washington, the NSA provided, the National Security Council provided opportunities for the president to get beyond that. It was difficult, however, because uh, you, you, you have to have some competent people both in the NSC below the Victoria Coates level, and also people in these other agencies who will listen to policy. Uh, but I think towards the end of the Trump administration, they realized that uh, there were ways the NSC could have been used to get past huge numbers of government careerists in national security agencies who were simply not following uh, presidential policy. I think that's a really interesting point because the president is the only elected member of the executive branch. So the the democratic mechanism, what he says should be what happens, right? Regardless of what careerists think. And I think it, especially under the Trump administration, it was very clear that they felt that their policy was more important than the president's. Would you guys agree with that statement? And and is that a problem for our system of governance? Well, I would I would agree with that statement 100%. I mean, we came into a government that was literally seated against us. Um, you know, obviously, the Obama administration had been in for eight years. Uh, the tendency on the part of, of the career folks is to be more, more liberal. Uh, that's not exclusive by any means, but it, it is the tendency. And so they're more comfortable in a Democrat administration. And so that had all gotten extremely comfortable. And President Trump came definitely as a shock to the system. Uh, we did suffer from having something of a revolving uh, door for national security advisors. Uh, there were four of them over the course of the four-year term. And that's, you know, that's difficult to get, you know, a consistent policy uh, implemented and gave a real opportunity for folks who didn't want to uh, comply with what the president wanted uh, to just to, to sort of wait us out. And so that, you know, that's a very real challenge any upcoming uh, Republican administration will have to, will have to face. And you know, it, it all it all comes down to staffing, both at the NSC and in the other agencies. The NSC is easier to staff for the executive branch because it's right under the president. And I think uh, uh, President Trump will acknowledge that staffing was one of the weak parts of his administration. And we we know from what happened during the Trump years that there were people detailed that is loaned to the NSC from other government agencies who didn't support the president, resisted his policies, and leaked. And I, I think that the, the senior Trump officials realized too late that they should have cleaned out the NSC of those people and brought in people who would promote the president's policies. But look, President Trump was the ultimate outsider. And I think that when you come to Washington in that 
situation, you really can't conceive of how bad the permanent bureaucracy is and how hard it will work to to basically de- destroy a Republican president and undermine his policies. Um, I, I think if Donald Trump was reelected, there would have been substantial house cleanings at the NSC, various government agencies, and especially the intelligence agencies. But I would have started with the NSC because it is a platform that a president can use to fix foreign policy and to address uh, these careerists who who refuse to uh, abide by presidential policy. I mean, why can't the careerists just be fired? If I mean, leaking classified information, which happened several times, is a felony. Um, I'm sure they could have figured out who that was, but also just if you're not doing your job, if you're not following what the commander in chief is telling you, then why can't you be fired? I think that's a critical point, Morgan. And and part of it comes down to a very simple issue, which is the National Security Council budget, which is is very, very small uh, compared to the rest of the, the government in the 10 to 15 million dollars a year range. And so the ability to hire political appointees uh, is 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 constrained. Now, you know, one thing you can do is if you know, for example, you're the Secretary of Energy, you can hire somebody and detail them over to the NSC. Uh, but that's cumbersome and it, it takes time. And I certainly think uh, if we have another Republican administration working during the transition to establish a responsible NSC budget to allow the incoming president to really have the people on his NSC or her, or her NSC that that they they want. And then also, I mean, to my mind, if, if there's a change, if you're going from a Democrat to a Republican administration, you need to be able to curtail the career folks who are there. And what that means is you're going to send them back to their home agency and you can do it with great thanks for their service. But if you're going to shift national security policy to uh shift national security policy basically 180 degrees. It's not really fair to ask the folks that have been working on the previous policy to make that shift on January 21st. So I think being prepared for this, knowing that you're going to need to have send a whole bunch of people back to their home agencies, maybe identifying some of the folks that you might want to have come over, and then being very prepared with your political appointees to go in would be critical work for any, any upcoming transition. That's exactly right. I, I, I think that um, we learned so much from what could have been done better in the Trump years. It's hard to, it's hard to fire people, uh, Morgan, as you know, in the federal government. It's also hard to know who leaks something. But also Democrats are better at manipulating government service. When the Trump administration came in, they had spent all the NSC personnel funds. It was very difficult to bring anybody in. They'd also encumbered uh, two and three year positions in the NSC with people who were unfriendly to Trump. Now, these people could have been sent back, but the Trump people were still learning how to run the government. And there were certain fights they didn't want to pick early on. Uh, late, late in the administration, they let these people go right away. 
But it's worth saying that uh, the Democrats made this as hard as possible uh, for a new incoming Republican administration. And it is my hope that as the Trump administration was leaving, they did the same thing, that they they left people behind and, and hired some good people who would remain. I, I know many of them, such as Victoria, uh, were let go uh, by, by this administration. But I, I hope some uh, good people brought in by Trump are still at the NSC. But Fred, why is it hard to fire federal employees? Just because even if you're sending them back to their agency and they're going to work to undermine the president, that shouldn't happen, right? Well, because they have career protections under law. The only people who can be fired without question are intelligence employees. They work at the discretion of the director, but other employees have uh, substantial appeal rights and uh, I mean, you, can you fire them? Yes, but you you may have you have to have a pretty good reason, pretty clear evidence, and you have to be prepared for a, a, a long and lengthy appeal process. Would it be accurate to describe it as similar to teachers' unions? I don't know if you've seen the documentary "Waiting for Superman," where teachers that are extremely problematic, the district will just put them in a room to go to every day with no students just because they can't fire them. I mean, is that kind of a similar? Sure. Um, I've known people who were removed from government jobs and basically given offices and closets. There was a government doctor one day who had nothing to do and made giant uh, creations in his office of paper cups all day long at a, at a, at a huge salary. But Victoria, what, I'd like to hear your views on this. Well, you know, Morgan, it, it's, you know, it, it is a challenging situation, but you know I've got to say, and this this might not be a popular opinion, uh, the vast majority of of the career civil servants that I worked with, with at the NSC wanted to serve the country, and they really they wanted to understand what our policies were, and then see if they could you know what they could do to support them. So I think the situation is very manageable if you go in with open eyes and explain, you know, if you have clarity about what your policies are. And one, one interesting thing is, is we had a lot of success uh, with the national security uh, strategy, the NSS, that was uh, published in, in December of, of 2017. And, you know, the president- Can you explain what the national security strategy is? The national security strategy is, is a document that most administrations put out in their first 12 to 18 months explaining the the priorities, national security priorities of the president. And sort of the gold standard is the one Henry Kissinger wrote for Nixon in 1968, uh, which interestingly is entirely focused on the Soviet Union and Vietnam. And going back and reading it, you know, it, 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 it just reminded me that that most, you know, one of those things doesn't exist anymore. And, and most Americans couldn't find Vietnam on a map at this point. So, you know, what, what's interesting, though, about what Henry wrote is the strategy, because uh, the issues will, will obviously change and the priorities will change. But this is was laying out pre- President Nixon's views, uh, you know, of the Cold War, of, of particularly how we were going to fight the Soviet Union, you know, what his priorities were going to be. And then, you know, Henry's job was, was to carry those out. So, you know, the the process to craft the national security strategy is is run obviously by the NSC, in our case by an extremely capable woman named Nadia Shadlow, who, working with the then National Security Advisor General McMaster, uh, put together I think a very durable uh, document that 
defines, you know, our major national challenges, first and foremost, China, but also including uh, radical Islamic terrorism, uh, Russia, other other issues. And uh, President Trump really uh, was was very pleased with with the product and, and took the unprecedented step of announcing it himself. Generally, the National Security Advisor gives a speech about the national security strategy. But President Trump thought the document was strong enough that he actually wanted to make a speech, uh, which he did personally and endorsed it. Now, a lot of people, including uh, the infamous Miles Taylor, who wrote the anonymous book, uh, A Warning. And one of the things Miles put in that book was that the president, you know, found the NSS burdensome and, you know, like an unread homework assignment, I believe he described it. And, you know, to have some of, you know, the political appointees treating it that way was a real disadvantage to us because, you know, the president had endorsed it, he had embraced it. And, but, but with folks running around saying he didn't care about it, you know, it, it, it took away, I think, what could have been a really important tool for us to explain what our policies were. I, I would add that uh, I agree with Victoria that the vast majority of career civil servants, I think, are professionals and they're not political. And I work with many of them at the NSC. I think the, the in fact, I, I, the, the bad apples are far and few between. They can just do a lot of damage. The problem you have when hiring, when you, you have to bring in the majority of staffers who are careerists because of the small NSC budget, Victoria's exactly right. But you have to have good political people and personnel to choose the right careers. And that's a mistake that the the Trump administration made over and over again. They didn't put good people in to select the right careers to hire and promote. And this was fixed over time. But you can imagine that these federal agencies are not necessarily going to send people who supported President Trump. They're going to support people from the bureaucracy who probably supports the last administration. You have to have savvy people and personnel to see who is the right person to send over. And if, if an agency promote, uh, uh, pro- provides somebody who obviously isn't acceptable, you have to say no and ask for more candidates. 100% concur. I mean, that 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 is going to be, as I said, a critical, critical task for the next transition to get that work done before January 21st so the president can hit the ground running with I, – I, probably a small, but but able and reliable NSC, because as we've seen, I mean, these crises come up, they come on you fast, and you've got to be ready to go. So that's something I wanted to come back to is just the, the makeup of the NSC, generally speaking. So the president isn't directly or is he directly pointing every single member of these? Because you talked about how if you just get one or two bad apples in this, that can kind of cause the rest of it to rot. That's a really interesting analogy, Matt. Because uh, and I think I think Fred was absolutely right with that. You know that that just a, a couple bad ones in there can cause enormous damage. And so you know again, I would just get back to the vigilance over over the personnel issue being you know critically important. Right. So one of the bad apples, or in my opinion, I think he was the bad apple, um, was. Alexander Vindman. So just to refresh everyone's memory, I don't want to get into the ins and outs of the impeachment, but he was on the NSC and he was on a call with the president and his supervisor. um, And he was listening to Trump talk to the president of Ukraine. And he didn't like what he what he heard. 
So he told the um, whistleblower who then went to Congress and he also went to the NSC counsel, the lawyer and his direct supervisor, both of whom said there was no issue. Um, and then this became sort of the, the root of Trump being impeached the first time. So when he testified before the House Select Committee on Intelligence in October, he said that, he, I mean, he really couldn't express what was actually wrong on the phone call other than it was outside of, quote, interagency consensus and went against, quote, the established government policy. So first of all, was that the correct way to handle disagreeing with the president? And second of all, who ultimately sets government policy? I think that um, Vindman was someone who had a, a incredible bias against President Trump and the Trump administration, and he shouldn't have been there. Uh, whether he had a legitimate objection or not, I don't think that he did. Uh, this is someone who ethically had no business being in the National Security Council because he was looking for reasons, I think, to undermine Trump policy. And the idea that the president did something that conflicts with interagency consensus, the president is the ultimate policymaker. That doesn't matter. The president does not have to listen to interagency consensus. They are his advisors. And I think that argument sort of un sort of makes you understand why this permanent bureaucracy is such a threat to our democratic system. They don't recognize the legitimacy of elected leaders. They think they run the show. They think they'll outlast these elected leaders and they will bully them into doing things that they would like, sometimes by leaking, uh, sometimes by just slow rolling uh, decisions. Uh, so I'm, I'm, um, I think I'm with you on your interpretation of this, uh, Morgan, but I'd like to hear uh, Victoria's take. Well, in, in, from my view, what Morgan describes is really the tragedy of the Trump NSC. And, you know, I, I concur completely that, that Alex should not have served on the Trump NSC, given his very clear hostility for and disdain for the president. And, you know, I think if you, if you feel that way about an individual, if the honorable thing to do is to, you know, to resign your commission at the NSC and, and go back you know, in his case, to the military. Uh, but, you know, the, the issue that that then created, among other things, was the president's deep distrust of the NSC. Uh, when, you know, he sees a, a number of, of former NSC staff testifying as, you know, against him in his impeachment trial, uh, first and foremost, you know, it, it, it obviously would really undermine his confidence in the institution. And so, you know, I think then the president did not have as much of a tool, as I had said earlier, to to express his views and priorities to the interagency because he really wanted to avoid the NSC, uh, absolutely understandably from, from my perspective. And so, you know, Alex was able, you know, with, with you know, the response to one phone call to, you know, create a really, really difficult uh, and challenging atmosphere. I think to your point about whether or not it was the appropriate way for him to to respond to the phone call, I, I concur 100% with Fred that if you, I mean, your views don't matter. Nobody voted for you. And, 
you know, you can express your views, obviously, and you can make recommendations and you can work through the NSC process to get those recommendations to the National Security Advisor and to the president. But ultimately, the president's the one who's going to set policy. He's going to decide what he's going to say on any given phone call. And he is certainly not constrained by a career bureaucrat's views. That's a really important take. And, and it was very unfortunate that the president lost confidence in the NSC and in the intelligence community because of, of the clear efforts by a handful of individuals in these organizations to work against him. And look, we need a president to be well-informed. And if he's not going to read or trust his intelligence community, he's in trouble. The same thing with the NSC. And this led to the really unfortunate decision by national security advisor O'Brien to slash the NSC, to let to let staff go, to throw out computers, to try to uh, make it smaller, thinking that the problem was that it was too large. Unfortunately, that was not the problem. If, if O'Brien and Trump had instead worked to bring in people who supported the president's policies, rather than slashing the organization, which actually made the president less effective, less able to interact with other agencies, he would have been better off. And my hope is that a future Republican president will realize maybe there's good reasons to have a small NSC. But uh, I think given how large the government has grown and the problem with trying to manage uh, these other national security agencies with career services that don't re- don't support Republican presidents, presidents. I think it's sometimes necessary to have a larger NSC with people who will keep these organizations in line. But I'm 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 not sure Victoria agrees with me on that. I'm wondering what you think. No, I I strongly agree, and it's why I would work on getting a larger budget for the NSC for precisely that reason. Uh, and it it is deeply unfortunate that after you know the the impeachment drama, that no one was able to express to the president you know how important it was for him to have a a robust, effective NSC, and that you know you you have. I think your point about the size of the government is so important. I mean, my experience in the last year of the administration working for the Department of Energy, again, hugely educational. Um, you know, one of the things that that Robert decided to do was get rid of everyone who was connected to the energy department on the NSC on the grounds that the NSC doesn't do energy. Well, energy is a massive national security issue for us now. And everything the department does from the nuclear file to space to cyber to artificial intelligence is all stuff the national security council should be deeply concerned with and to simply cut off the conduit to that department uh out of the nsc on the grounds that we wanted to get to whatever it was you know 200 staffers or whatever it was under under national security advisor rice you know was was in my view deeply arbitrary and really did a disservice to the president well just to wrap up i have one more question and i want to hear from you both um as we talked about at the beginning there's an unfolding disaster right now in afghanistan and i have wondered a lot about the advice that Biden has gotten from his advisors and if he has if they have said don't do this withdrawal this way and he ignored it or if they gave him this advice but if you were both still on the NSC and were asked to for your input and the decisions went ahead as they have unfolded what would be the right way to um, not overstep to implement the policy that the president wants but at the same time um, 
not compromising your own ethics or morality or something that you're against doing? Well, it's always my view that that if if you don't agree with what the president's doing, you have you have two options. You you can decide that you're going to fall in line and support what the president's doing, or you can resign. Um, but the idea that you're going to sort of create some <laughs> nest of resistance within an, an administration is is deeply deeply damaging. Um, so what you know what's concerned me watching Afghanistan is it seems to me that this is a breakdown of the NSC process because, you know, that now we have the military pointing fingers at the State Department, which is pointing fingers at the intelligence community, and everybody's going to be in, you know, cover their backside mode uh, in coming months. And, you know, that, that looks to me like it just wasn't properly coordinated. And certainly nobody was able to convey to the president the potential gravity of, of his decisions and, you know, his continued defiance and insistence that this was a success, I think shows you how, how ill-prepared he was to make these decisions. And, you know, that, that should be what the NSC does. So, you know, I'm, I'm deeply concerned uh, that, that, that that process is broken down and given the crises we're likely to face over the course of the next months, you know, that's got to worry every American. That shouldn't be a partisan issue. Sadly, um, Bob Gates said once, wrote once that uh, Joe Biden has been on the wrong side of every national security issue for 40 years. Gates wrote that in 2010. And I, I fear that Biden, who is suffering mental decline, he's now making decisions that make no sense. He has a third string group of advisors, including uh, Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken, neither of whom have the gravitas of a Henry Kissinger or Condoleezza Rice or Jim Baker. They should not be there. I also think there's a phenomenon, unfortunately, phenomena in, in this administration where they're they're afraid to dissent. They're afraid to argue against things that Joe Biden wants to do. Joe Biden is a, is a know-it-all and uh, everybody has to fall in line. I think that's why we're seeing uh, memos from the Secretary of Defense and, and uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff coming with policy recommendations, uh, things that may have been ordinarily passed along orally. They're doing it in writing because the Biden White House wants to make sure they can't back out of their recommendations later or tell claim that they made some other recommendations. There's a time when in government service you have to resign. Uh, and if if you're faced with a decision which you think is deeply damaging to our national security, uh, you have to object to your boss. And if your boss ignores, you have to leave and tell Congress. That's what should have happened here. How our Secretary of Defense and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, uh, did not resign. I, I think that they really have to. And I think it's very telling that the two of them have not been on TV for the last week. I think they're worried they'd be asked questions by the press and what they really thought, what they really told Biden uh, behind the scenes. I think the two of them did tell Biden not to do what he was doing in, in Afghanistan. I think the way forward is strong bipartisan act, uh, pressure on Biden to replace his national security team with men and women of gravitas and influence and backbone who will stand up to his uh, tendency to make irresponsible and dangerous national security decisions. I think it is that bad, that serious right now. The world is looking at maybe the weakest American president in history. And I think this this is very dangerous for our security and for global security. We can't remove him right now for political reasons. My hope is that uh, we'll have some sensible leadership by Congress 
and pressure Biden to bring in some better people, surround him with better people to protect us from his incompetence. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you. Thank you.